And it's in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. You could quote these words as I read them. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. If you were to take a pencil and circle in the first chapter of Genesis the word God, you would draw a circle 32 times. Sometimes it's the word Elohim, which means one in whom to take refuge. And sometimes it's the word Yahweh, which means I will cause to happen what I will cause to happen. And one supreme creator bringing everything into being, everything into creation. What can man know about God? There's a great, that is, great deal that is being declared about Him from the little boy who exalted God is greater than Superman, Batman, and the Lone Ranger put together. To Tillich's ground of all being, to the Star Wars movies that remind us that the Force is with us. And yet to really understand God, a person would have to come to the book of Genesis at chapter 1 for his beginning. It is the beginning place of an understanding of God. Now I know that the story of Genesis 1 is called the story of creation. But I don't really think it's the story of creation. I think it's the story of the Creator. And the creation and His creature, humanity, becomes an index or a, a point of reference that gives us an understanding about the Creator. He says four things does the biblical writer say about the Creator. First of all, he assumes his presence in the beginning God. So the book of Genesis begins with an assumption of the existence of God. It doesn't um, try to prove Him. It doesn't argue Him. It doesn't even theologize God. It just begins with the basic assumption that God exists. And the biblical writer has been given the privilege of pulling back the curtains of past history and peering in on the dawn of antiquity and as far back as he can see, there God was. As a matter of fact, the Bible never once attempts to prove the existence of God. It just begins with that basic assumption and declares boldly that a man who does not begin there with a basic assumption of the existence of God is a fool. I heard about a man lecturing in a lecture hall, a theologian lecturing in a lecture hall. At the end of his lecture concerning the existence of God, there, he gave a time for question and answers, and there was this agnostic there who was just appalled by the statements this theologian had made. And so he got a piece of paper, and he wrote a note on this piece of paper. He wrote the word fool on there. And he called the usher and, and, and over to him. He said, take this note up to that speaker. And so the usher went up there faithfully, handed it to the speaker, and he opened the note, saw the word fool on it, paused for a moment and said, the most amazing thing has happened. Oftentimes people have written me messages and have failed to sign their name. 
This is the first time a man has signed his name and failed to give the message. The Bible says that a fool says in his heart, there is no God. It just begins with the assumption of God's presence. Then Genesis 1 affirms the priority of God. In the beginning, God, it declares that God stands alone and there are no beings on His level that is significant when you, when you consider that this, when you contrast this viewpoint with the viewpoint of the biblical writer's day. For in that day, they believed there were many gods, kind of a pantheon of gods that existed on a level with God. There were many gods that existed accompanying the Creator on various levels. This passage declares that God stands alone. There is none beside Him and none before Him. I shudder when I hear someone say that a man has the freedom to believe in his God or worship his God and put that word his there. And I shudder when I hear someone ask, do you believe there is a God? There is only one. This God of creation stands alone and there is no female principle which lives as his counterpart, contrary to what the leading cult in America is teaching. He stands alone with no one else on level with him. The Bible affirms his priority. The Bible in the third place asserts the power of God. It says that God just spoke and everything came into being at His command. He said the word, let there be light, and there was light. It speaks of His power and it pictures everything in creation under His control. When it says that God is Creator, it is a statement of His sovereignty. He is not a part of creation. He created it. He is not controlled by history, He started it. He is not the projection of the human mind, He provided it. And this sovereign God transcends and rules and governs His universe. And the word that's used there, the Bible word for His power, is the word omnipotence. Now contrary to what some think, that does not mean that God can do anything. God cannot do anything that is contrary to His nature. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. When it says that God is omnipotent, it means that God can do anything He wishes. Anything that His divine wisdom and goodness dictates ought to be done. For God is Lord of all. He is supreme over His creation. He is King of kings. It asserts His power. But it does one other thing in Genesis 1, and that is that it, it acknowledges His plan. Now watch this. God not only created a universe and rules over it, but the biblical writer reveals that God had a plan and that plan was to become involved in it. And so Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. That word in the Hebrew is a word that means to brood over. Kylan Dalich, the noted Old Testament scholars say that that word means is the picture of a bird hovering over 
its nest to warm her young and to help develop their creative powers. Whenever it says that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, it is a picture of a God becoming intimately involved in His creation. There is a picture, there is a piece of graffiti that said, God is not dead, He just doesn't want to get involved. Nothing could be farther from the truth. He is not only a God of power, He's a God of passion. He is a God whose infinity did not prevent His involvement. He got personally involved. And the ultimate expression of the involvement of God in His creation is the cross. Now let's nail this down. God existed before time. He is prior to His universe and has power over it and controls it. And in His plan, He created a world into which He has become involved. That leads us to the second element of the story. It's the element of creation. The Scripture says, and in the beginning God created. The Hebrew word is the word barach. It means to bring into existence that which had no existence. It means that when God created the universe, He brought into existence that which had had no previous existence. So that if someone were to ask you someday, do you believe that, you can that man can create life in a test tube? You can emphatically answer no to that question. Because to create something means that you start from nowhere. You start from nothing. There is no light. There is no air. There is no test tube. So that when God created the universe, He brought into being that which had never been before. Now this creation, the idea of His creation, implies two things. First of all, it means that if God created everything, there is nothing that is worthy of our ultimate concern. That is important in a materialistic age. For some of us, many of us, are guilty of thingification, the worship of things. Now watch carefully. If we give ultimate concern to things, if we give ultimate concern or worship to the creation, we are guilty of what the Bible calls idolatry. And the rationale is simple. If God created everything and controls it, then there is nothing, not money, not success, not popularity, not property, there is nothing that is worthy of our ultimate concern or worship than God Himself. If God created it and He controls it, then He's the only one worthy of our ultimate concern. There's a counterpart, however. If God created everything and nothing is worthy of our ultimate concern, then nothing is worthy of our ultimate contempt. For you see, if God created it and He controls it, then everything is good in itself. Now watch carefully, I want you to misunderstand. If God created it, then what He created was good. In fact, He said over and over again after He created 
It is good. It is good. It is good. The Lord spoke from heaven and reminded Simon Peter, whatever I've created, whatever God has created, don't you ever call unclean. So that whatever God has created is good in itself. It is man's misuse and abuse of what he has created that has made it evil. For example, power is not evil in itself. It is evil when power is abused or misused. Sex is not evil in itself. It is when that gift from God is abused or misused that it becomes evil. Money is not evil in itself. Material possessions are not evil in themselves. It's our abuse or misuse of them that makes them evil. And there's a kind of a Phariseeism that has existed from the beginning of time and that, and that gave rise to monastic practices in the first century. This is an evil world, therefore I must flee from it, build a wall to protect myself from it. The only thing wrong with the world is man has misused it and abused it. There is this creation of God. Now God the Creator created all of creation, and that brings us to the third element that is the crown of His creation, which is the creature, humanity. Mankind is the crown of creation, is the apex of the universe. When God decided He would create, He had as His ultimate goal the creation of you, of man, of humanity, of human beings. And He created and called it good until He created man, until He created human beings, humanity. And He called that creation very good, for it was the apex of His creative activity. Man is the crown of creation. Now there are many questions man asks about himself. Where am I going and why am I here? And these questions concerning the nature and the destiny of man are answered in germinal form in the first chapter of Genesis. Two things are said about humanity, or implied. First, his creativity. Now watch carefully. Man is the crown of creation. He is the apex of the universe. But that is no better said than what is said in verses 25 and 26. This is what it says there. It says that man, mankind, humanity, was created in the image of God. And it is a statement of the uniqueness of man. Significant for what's this. Animals were created after their kind, or made after their kind. But man was made after God's kind so that man is made in the image of God, unique in creation. Now what does it mean to say that man is made in the image of God? Does it mean he looks like him? God has no physical form, no man has ever seen him? No, it means three things. It refers to rationality. It means that man has the ability to think and to make decisions, rational decisions. It refers to relationship. It means that man has the potential of a relationship with God. He can fellowship with God. 
Not one time did I ever see Freckles the Wonder Dog in prayer thanking God for her Alpo. Not one time. But every time I sit down to eat, there's something in me that wants to thank Him for what's before me. And every time I see the glory of a sunrise while I'm out doing my road work, there's something inside of me that makes me want to thank Him, that says, give Him thanks. Because man was made unique in the sense that man was created for a relationship with, for fellowship with God. It means a third thing. It means responsibility. For when God created man, He created him to have responsibility in His creation. As a matter of fact, He placed him in dominion over creation. So there is rationality, there is ability, and there is responsibility in the creativity of man. But there's another side to the picture. Not only is there asserted in chapter 1 the creativity of man, but the creatureliness of man. For you see, he is the crown of creation, but he's still a part of creation. He's the apex of the universe, but he's still a part of the universe. He's created in the image of God, but he's not God. He has been given dominion over all the creation, but he's still under God's dominion. And he is superior to creation, but inferior to the Creator. And that's where man has tripped up. For you see, man has had a problem living within the tension that exists between his creativity on the one hand and his creatureliness on the other. For when a person decides that he wants to ascend to the place of God, he commits the sin of pride. And when he descends to the place of animals, he commits the sin of sensuality. And both tendencies, the desire to be more than we are and the willingness to be less than we are, is a sin against the one who created us. For man is created in God's image. Now what does that mean to us? And how can, you, how can we apply that in the five minutes or so that remain? And I promise I'll wind it up. Take heart. I was digging through some material the other day and I found a statement that came out of an old German theological book. The illustration that kind of wraps this thing up. The, the, the author of the statement contends that what we are to God is what a man's hand is to a man. And that means three things he said. A man is first greater than his hand. Now he needs his hand and his hand is important to him and his hand is valuable. But a man is greater than his hand. He can live without his hand. Best teacher I ever had in school was a one-armed science teacher. He could do just about anything. He, I'll tell you what, he was greater than his hand. A man can live without his hand because he's greater than his hand. God is greater than you. As a matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 40 talks of the greatness of God. It says God is so great he holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. And he measures out the heavens with a tape measure. And God is so great he reckons the dust of the earth to be about a peck. And he weighs the mountains on scales like we used to do when we picked cotton in the fields. 
and he weighs the, mount, the hills on jeweler scales, and then he kind of sums it up and says, God is so great that all the nations of the earth are like a drop hanging on the edge of the bucket. It could fall off and never be missed. The greatness of God. And whatever you find in the Bible about God, you're going to find like a trumpet ringing again and again God's greatness. God is greater than us. God uses, second point, God uses and needs us like a man uses and needs his hand. Man needs his hand. Now, I never cease to be amazed at what I'm, I've seen people, amputees do, who had no hands. I had a young lady in my church at North Fort Worth. Her husband was in the seminary. She was born without arms. She was the mother of two small children. Now, if you want to, have you ever seen a woman change a diaper without hands or arms? Well, that's a sight. She'd put that baby down and she'd change that baby's diaper in a flash using her chin and her teeth and her feet. It's amazing. Now, there's something, I, I never cease to be amazed at what people can do who don't have hands and arms and legs, etc., eyes or ears. But the fact is, there are some things that a man cannot do without his hands. Now watch carefully. There are some things that God can do in you and through you and by you and with you that He cannot do without you. He needs you and He depends on you, believe it or not. And I'm not being sacri sacrilegious when I say that God in His self-imposed limitation needs you like a man needs his hands. A man by the name of Hagaborn, when the first atomic bomb was tested in New, New Mexico, wrote this little prose. Listen to this. Is a day after that bomb was dropped or exploded in New Mexico, White Sands testing ground. He said, I went to call on the Lord in his house on the high hill my head full of 150 million having to grow up overnight. He's thinking about all the people in America that would live now under the shadow, under the threat of the atomic, of the atomic bomb. He said, my head was full of 150 million people having to grow up overnight. If ever a people, Lord, needed a miracle, and the Lord looked at me as a mountain might look at a molecule, so you want a miracle, said the Lord. My, my. You want a miracle. I suppose you mean that you want me to come sliding down a sunbeam and make 150 million self-willed egotists overnight into 150 million cooperative angels. Brother, said the Lord in a voice that shook the windows, that isn't the sort of universe you're living in and that isn't the sort of God I am. The Lord strode through His house so the timbers whispered to each other. He's thinking of the soul tonight, of the soul of man and the power that's asleep in the soul. He always shakes the house when he thinks of the power, the power asleep, asleep in the soul of man. Give me your life and day shall be like a new world. The unclean shall be clean, the cowardice courage, the weakness power. Give me your life 
and I'll make a spade to dig the foundations of a new world, a crowbar to pry loose the rocks, a hole to mix sand and cement, a trowel to bind stone and stone and make them a, rock, a wall. Man without God is a bubble in the sea, a single grain of sand on an infinite beach, but God without man is a mind without a tongue or ears or eyes or fingers or feet. God and man together, we are such power as not all the atoms in all creation can match. I love that. What are you saying is that God needs you and there are some things He cannot do without you. Third point, God hurts in and through us like a man hurts in and through his hand. He in every way was tempted just as you yet without sin. He hurts with you. He agonizes when you agonize, he is so involved in this world, he can't exist without feeling what you feel. He hurts when you hurt. He laughs when you laugh. He weeps when you weep. He mourns when you mourn. What you are to God is that. Now one day before time, in the omniscience of God's mind, He had a plan. In the omnipotence of His power, He spoke that plan into being. And in the omnipresence of His presence, He touches every atom and every molecule of this universe. And thus, He is here. Now, if God says a word, creation obeys. If God says a word to you, will you obey? Can you tell God no if God told you to place your life in this church, to surrender to preach, to go as a missionary, to straighten up your life? Can you tell God no? You can't tell Him no. Can you turn your back upon God's will for you? You can't do that. You can't treat God that way. God is the creator. So whatever God wills for you in this invitation, I plead by the mercies of God that without hesitancy you just say, Thy will be done. It may be to give your heart and life to Jesus, and the saving experience, it may be to join the church, it may be that he needs, you need to get closer to God. Your life is lived in rebellion and, 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 and in apathy. Whatever God tells you to do when we pray, my prayer is you'll say yes to that and be obedient. Because after all, He's the Creator and you're the creature. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You that we can call you Father, the great creator of heaven and earth. And I pray that in this moment of invitation, we'll be obedient to your word. For I pray in the name of Jesus and ask it for his sake. 
Our invitations this morning are threefold. An invitation to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. First time encounter of salvation. An invitation for you to come and join the church. Or finally, an invita invitation for you to rededicate your life to Christ today. So while we stand to sing and our people are praying, we invite you to come.